Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, May 8th, we're studying Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. God's law is holy, righteous, and good, but humanity is sinful, and sin takes advantage of the law. It produces even more sin. It leads us to death. But what about the life of the Christian? St. Paul has described his experience with the law prior to his conversion. What about his experience with the law as a Christian? To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. Pastor Kuntz is the Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Pastor Kuntz, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning. Great to be with you. As we get started this morning, Pastor Kuntz, give us some context here in, in Romans 7. It seems particularly starting at verse 7 is really where, I mean, it, it all is building, but but verses 7 through 13 really lead into what we're getting at today. What's what's Paul been talking about going previously that brings us up to speed today? Paul has been explaining, at least since the beginning of Romans 5, what it means uh, that all the things that he said in Romans 1 through 4 are actually true. So he's been explaining in increasingly personal terms what the effect of sin and the law and a lot of the themes that are, he's picked up in 5 and 6 in the beginning of 7 mean for a person's life. What's interesting about uh, 7, beginning from verse 7, is that Paul begins to speak in the first person singular. So he begins to say, I, 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 I. And the word happens many, many, many times from Romans 7, 7 through the end of the chapter where we're going today. That singular is meant to describe Paul, but it's also meant for us who are hearing him, both his first hearers and we who are listening today, to think about, okay, well, if the apostle of Christ describes himself this way, what else could I say about myself? So it's really important, I think, this move that Paul makes from 7-7 onward, especially into the first-person singular, because he's now describing the life of a Christian, and it is, it is some of the, uh, the harder aspects of that. It would be one thing if he had said, I go on from strength to strength, and everything is great, and everything works fantastically, and sometimes that's the way that um, particularly important Christians are portrayed, whether the apostles or Luther or something like that. But Paul speaks in the first person singular and says, I, and then gives a very real depiction of what his life is like and what he struggles with. And that's where we are today. So, I mean, and this is, we touched on this a little bit yesterday in verses 1 through 13, particularly in verses 7 through 13, that Paul is talking about himself here. And and in terms of the, the timeline, there was a bit of, yesterday, we the guest and I mostly decided that in verses 7 through 13, Paul is primarily talking about his life prior to Christianity, as I said in the introduction, and today he's going to talk about his life as a Christian. Are those are those fair things to say, and, and why is there some—because there is some disagreement on this chapter. How do you how do you come down on that, Pastor Coons? 
Yeah, there's, I, I agree with you. I think what he's describing in 7 through 13 is a description of his life as a Pharisee uh, from a different perspective. So there are other places in Paul and also in Acts where he talks about his blamelessness before the law. And I think that that is very much true in the sense of if other people looked at his life, they would think he was always an upright man. But the insight that he's giving in 7 through 13 is that upon further reflection after his conversion, he now has a true understanding of God's law and what, it, what it's actually revealing not just what I should do, but also who I truly am and the depth of the sickness of my sin, the, 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 the terminal illness that I have that is this disease of sin. He didn't realize that as a Pharisee. He's now able to describe his life as a Pharisee under the law um, now that he looks back as a Christian with the, with the light that Christ brings. The reason there's disagreement both about that portion, 7 through 13, and our portion for today, 14 through 25, is mainly because a lot of people, when they read this, cannot handle the idea that Paul would actually have the struggles that he describes. So they'll propose, and if, you know, if your listeners are familiar with any kind of commentary on the subject, especially if it's not a Lutheran commentary, uh, most people are very uncomfortable with and would disagree with the idea we're putting forth here today that Paul is actually talking about Christian life. They'll say, oh, well, it's about, it's about Adam. That's kind of one idea. Or it's about Israel. Or, it, or Paul's talking, but he's not speaking for himself, even though he says, I, 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 I. So uh, there's a lot of disagreement, and I think it comes down to a basic discomfort with the idea that Paul could have this evaluation of himself, even under grace. You are not under the law, but under grace. Even under grace, he still has these struggles. People are very uncomfortable with that idea. Hmm. Why, why is it important, do you think, that we teach that this is Paul talking about himself, and he's describing, again, as you said, not only the eye of himself, but the eye of that this is me putting myself there, you putting yourself there. Why is that important that we hold on to that? Because it gives us a realistic picture of what it means to be someone who has been born anew of the living Spirit of God, and will be raised on the last day uh, in blessedness. This is true. At the same time, we are, some, we are people, all of us, who still have sin and death in our midst, who still drag the flesh around with us, uh, the flesh, and we'll see that in today's text. So if we are unrealistic, uh, then we will think that everything in our lives should be amazing all of the time, because we belong to Jesus. It's Paul's realism about the fact of how amazing Christ and his gifts are, while simultaneously, and that simultaneous is what you know, the Lutheran tradition picks up on, simultaneously, I remain a sinner. Now, we have to be very careful about Paul's attitude toward his sin and how he describes sin, but we don't want to be unrealistic and give people an account of the Christian life that doesn't include the fact that while I am a saint, I am also now regrettably still, and one day it will go away, but I am still today a sinner. Uh, and if you let go of either saint, then you'll lose hope. And if you let go of sinner, then you'll lose realism. And that's probably a bigger danger. You will think you are somehow already perfect. So this mm. description of the Christian life as both saint 
and center is absolutely essential so that we understand who we are and what's actually happening with us now in this present time before Christ returns. We, we, we spent a whole episode talking about the distinction between the old Adam and new Adam or old man, new man, saint, sinner. There's, there's a variety of ways that the scriptures speak about this distinction. With uh, Dr. Dr. Rick Mars of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis a couple of weeks ago. And, and Pastor Coons, do you think that this is, I mean, is this the, the key text for that distinction? And, and if so, where else do we also see it laid out for us? I think this is the key text for this distinction because it is the best, it is the clearest description that you have in Scripture of that understanding of the Christian life. There are other places to go. Um, uh, One other place that you could go immediately would be the plea that the man makes uh, whose son is uh, captured by a demon and thrown sometimes into fire and sometimes into water in Mark's gospel when the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. That's kind of a compressed version of what Paul is saying at, with much greater detail in Romans 7, which is that on the one hand, it's like this. On the other hand, it's like that. You also have to look throughout, especially the New Testament uh, letters, at how the writers talk to Christians. So they'll say on the one hand, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, uh, appealing to the new man in you who, is, who has a will in accord with God's law. On the other hand, they'll say, uh, put to death uh, what is, you know, mortal in you, uh, the passions that, that wage war against you. So what you see once you, you know, start from the really clear stuff in something like Romans 7 or that story example I gave from Mark's gospel, then you see this everywhere in the scriptures because you see the prophets and the apostles talking to people as if on the one hand, they get it, and they want to do the right thing, and they want to live in a different way than they've been living, and they want to change. New man. But you see them also saying, there's a lot that's going on with you that is a big mess, and that also needs to change, and that is the discipline that the old man needs. That's the killing that the old man needs. And it's why also, you know, just earlier on, a a chapter previous to this one in Romans 6, you get the quote in the small catechism about baptism from Romans 6, 4, where the, the fact that you have been buried with Christ in baptism indicates that you are now need to walk in a newness of life. Well, why do we have to say that? I mean, if you're just doing it, you shouldn't have to talk about it. The reason we have to be explicit about it is because the old man uh, wants to just take over. Uh, <laughs> he wants to rule everything. So by daily contrition and repentance, he needs to be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires. And the new man has to arise daily uh, from those baptismal waters uh, to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. So it's all over the place, but Romans 7, 14 to 25 is definitely your clearest, most concise place to go. I appreciate you you bringing out just the way that the the New Testament writers particularly make use of this teaching, because that's that's a key feature. There are tons of places, as you said, this being the clearest, where you see it laid out in a systematic fashion. But to see how they take it and apply it in the way that they speak to Christians is helpful for us today as we think about what what do we need as Christians? What what should pastors be giving to Christians in terms of law, gospel, command, promise, and and when it's needed? So this is this is a key distinction that we're talking about. Very practical too. So with that, let's go ahead and read the text. We're in Romans chapter seven, beginning at verse fourteen. Paul writes, 
For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I do, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That's the text for today, Romans 7 verses 14 through 25. It's, I, I think we, we tend to speak a bit lightheartedly about this text that we get tongue-tied, and I, I found myself tongue-tied even here on the radio. That's, there's, there's a lot of, you know, I do what I don't want. I don't want what I do. It, it, sometimes it's hard to, to keep it all straight, so we're going to do our best today, Pastor Coons. So verse, verse 14, just to, to start right there at the beginning, we know that the law is spiritual. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. A couple things stand out to me a, a little bit. Paul calls the law spiritual, which, which I think, you know, goes back to what he's been saying about the law being holy, righteous, good previously. At the same time, in verse six of the chapter, he said we'd been released from the law, and, and he compared that as an old way, now that we serve the new way of the spirit. But here he calls the law spiritual. That, that stands out to me as a, maybe how do we put those things together? And then also that second part of this phrase, I am of the flesh sold under sin, he spent a lot of time in chapter six saying that Christians are not slaves to sin. Now we are slaves to God, slaves to righteousness. So how do those, help me sort that out, Pastor Coons. Yeah, this is Paul being characteristically uh, difficult in jumping around between the phrases and images that he uses. So when you're talking about the law, he will sometimes speak about the law in contrast to the spirit as the thing that enslaved me or the thing that brought in second corinthians the ministry of death it administers death it kills it destroys right um in contrast to the spirit which brings life and he makes that very clear in second corinthians 3 and 4 that is in line with what he says in here in romans 7 6 we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive but in contrast to Paul's flesh, there's nothing wrong with the law. So when he's talking about the nature of salvation and what actually brings life, he'll say, the law could not do that. All the law could do was kill me. All the law could do was hold me captive. It could not bring me life. The Spirit alone can do that. But that the law is not in and of itself insufficient. And that's why he's been so clear about the nature of sin really throughout this chapter and how the knowledge of the law awakened sin within him and made it, quote, exceedingly sinful, right? 
So the problem is ultimately not the law. It can't give life, but it wasn't intended to. It can't give life, but the problem is ultimately me, or he's going to specify further my flesh or Mm. sin dwelling in me. So the issue here, what he's drilling down to in Romans 7, 14 and onward is what is the actual problem? Now, Paul expresses things very vividly. So if you just take on its face, Christians are slaves to righteousness. How can he talk about serving the law of sin in in 725? He wants to speak very vividly about what in me that is corruptible and decaying and bound for death, what is that in me doing? And he's not doing that to say that it's okay. You can hear this tone of miserable self-contradiction when he says, I do the very thing I hate. And we can talk more about that. But the issue with slavery is that he's not saying that he, uh, in and of himself, as a Christian, every single day just loves to commit sin, and he likes to present himself for sin. And you know, um, But what he's saying is, there is something in me. There's something in me. I find another thing going on in me besides this holy desire to serve God and his law. I find also within me this other dynamic, we might say, that wants to commit sin, that likes sin, that enjoys it, that desires it. And that is Paul being realistic, understanding that the guilt of his sin has been taken away, but not yet before Christ's coming or before his death, not yet has the power of sin been taken away to work trouble in his life. So he's not contradicting himself when he said, you know, we're slaves to righteousness. Because that's really, I only have one master. I cannot have two masters. But there's somebody who still wants to be my master, (laughs) and that is my flesh. And he is fighting mightily to dethrone Christ if he can. And that's what Paul's really talking about. Yeah, that, I think that's a very helpful explanation. So then, the, maybe let's see uh, where do where do we want to start? Verse fifteen. Then Paul Paul starts digging into this struggle that he has. I don't understand my own actions, and you know, I mean, we talked about this word "I," <laughs> but it seems like this "I" has a a split personality. I do not do what I want. So my actions. My desires, it's all mine, but I'm apparently split, as you were saying. I've, I've got one master, but there's another master who's, who's right there vying for control. Start taking us into the struggle that Paul's describing in himself. Yeah. He is saying that, notice that he's reflecting on things. So hmm. this chapter doesn't, the entire chapter, and much less this section, does not exist without a regular practice of self-examination and repentance because Paul would not be able to say these things unless he agreed that the law is holy and righteous and good, and the problem is actually him. So what he's doing now is looking, okay, well, what, where does this come from? Because he's able to reflect enough to say, I did this thing, or I said this thing. And it's important when we say flesh to say clearly that although that usually involves sexuality, specifically in modern-day English, it doesn't in biblical Greek. It's pretty much everything that is of merely human and therefore in this present age sinful, corruptible origin. So flesh isn't just 
sexual sin. It's anything that's coming from me that's going to be contrary to God's law that works against God and his holy, righteous, and good law. So when I think about my actions, my words, my thoughts, I don't understand because the thing that I want to do, I'm failing to accomplish. And there's a specific word in the Greek over and over again, kathargazome, which means accomplish. And that, that means that, like, I, maybe I even wanted to do the right thing, or maybe I even wanted to say the right thing, but I didn't get around to actually doing it or saying it. But it's easy for me to get around to doing what my flesh wants. <laughs> and, and that gap, you know, that, that, that achievement gap between what uh, the regenerate will, the newborn will, the renewed will wants, and what the flesh is able to accomplish, this is where it's important to recognize that sin is very easily done. Sin is very easily done. And so I don't get accomplished the good stuff I want to do, but I realize that I do plenty of things that I later have to go on to repent of. I do the very thing I hate. This is different from the hypocrite whom Paul has portrayed all the way back in Romans 2, because the guy back in Romans 2, he does stuff that he preaches against, that he teaches against, but he, he's not reflective about it, and he's certainly not repentant about it. In fact, he just goes on condemning it while he himself does it. He has no capacity for repentance. Romans seven fourteen to 25 shows you a repentant man speaking. That means that he's honest. It also means that he accepts responsibility for the problem, which is this gap between what I want to do, and what actually happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, if, I do, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, right? So he's specifying, you know, the law is not the problem. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And this is where I, I think it, it, it is important to say that this is not kind of like a uh, a, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation where some, you know, at night or something, Paul turns into a monster. It's more an issue of Paul recognizing that there's always, you know, no matter how much he prepares the ground and whatever good things are growing there, there are always weeds keep popping up. It's in the nature of the thing for there to be weeds. And uh, that recognition is Paul seeing there is something else going on inside me alongside, always, alongside uh, everything good that God's Spirit is doing in my life. Mm-hmm. I, I want to come back to that, to what you, how you started there about this matter of, of self-reflection, that, that what we see here is, is, is only possible for someone who is reflecting upon or examining himself, someone who's reflecting upon what he's done, what he thinks, what we think we would call it today confession as as Christians. Mm-hmm. Wh- why is that such a, a key thing for, for us still going forward as we take this chapter for us today? Yeah, it, it's key because you have to you have to recognize that the struggle itself is the sign of life. One reason that a lot of people cannot accept that Paul is speaking is because they, they think that a Christian would have these struggles, but I don't know who else would, because <laughs> the struggle presumes that you say the law is good, God's revelation is good, God's will is good. Um, it also presumes that you are going through your life 
stopping and reflecting on what you do and say and are. And that kind of repentance is, is, is godly. Uh, that's a godly sorrow. And it means that you take time, have the time in your life to think about what kind of a person you are. You're not going through the motions. You're stopping and thinking. And think about how busy Paul was and how much he had going on and how much people depended upon him. But he still has the time, the time to reflect, the time to think, uh, to be this brutally honest about his own life. Um, that's absolutely necessary because it's very easy on the one hand to see the gap between what you want to be and what you actually are and to despair of it. And if you stopped this chapter at, you know, before verses 24 and 25, uh, maybe, you know, despair would be the answer. You could despair of it. On the other hand, I think what most often happens, especially when people are busy and they don't have time to reflect, is that they become, instead of despairing, they often become prideful. And that's more of, you know, your hypocrite in Romans 2, where I don't really have time to be bothered to think about how I'm doing my life and how things are going. So um, I'm going to go through the motions. Um, maybe I even go to church and I'm going through the motions. And as I do that, I never stop and reflect on, am I actually the kind of person um, that I need to be? Uh, or is there, is there anything wrong with me? Um, and the, the stakes of this are not just like, oh, you're too busy and it's not good to be busy. The stakes are that the human being, when he doesn't stop and reflect and then repent, will be engaged in self-justification rather than justification by faith in Christ. And so this picture that Paul is painting for us of himself is going to push us toward only justification by faith in Christ because I have no other hope for anyone overcoming that gap or being righteous other than Christ. Uh, if you don't stop and think, it's very easy no longer to need Christ because you think uh, maybe you're despairing, but maybe more often you're prideful and you think, well, I, I, I'll close the gap on my own, or there's really no gap, I'm a good person. And that's most often what people do. This is why when you're talking about justification, it's not just a theological word. Every human being does this. Uh, what the Bible is offering you is a, different, is a different option for justification other than self-justification. Um, and that's exactly what Paul is trying to do here. He's confessing. He's repenting. He is not justifying himself. Mm, right. But looking instead, as, as we'll come to in verses 24 and 25, justification in Christ Jesus alone. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFO. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. A worried king. I dare not leave my kingdom in the hands of the man he is growing to be. And a daring knight with a plan. Sire, I must have full charge of the prince if this is to work. Sir Malcolm and the Missing Prince. Lamplighter Theater. Building character one story at a time. Lamplighter Theater. Here on this station. Saturday mornings at 11 on Worldwide KFUO. 
Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, host of Moments of Assurance Worldwide KFUO. On the next MOA weekend, Saturday and Sunday, I'm going to be sharing thoughts with you about the parable of the wedding feast. Jesus said, but when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Well, how do those words apply to you and to me today? I'll talk about it this Saturday and Sunday morning on Moments of Assurance Weekend, 745 a.m. Central on Worldwide KFUO. Our listeners and supporters are talking about Worldwide KFUO. Yeah, I think your programming is just wonderful. I love the emphasis on the traditional tunes rather than the modern music. Keep up the good work. Thank you. To leave a message on the KFUO comment line, call 314-996-1542. That's 314-996-1542. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Worldwide KFUO. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Friday, May 8th. We're looking at Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25 with the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz, Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Pastor Kuntz, a couple of things prior to the break in, in that last segment, you, you said the struggle itself is the sign of life. I thought that's, that's a fantastic way of, of looking at this. The struggle itself is the sign of life. Remember what Paul has said about sin leading to death. And, and when we continue in sin, we're, we're not alive, we're not struggling, but the struggle is the sign of life. Uh, another thing I wanted to come back and, and get your thoughts on a little bit more, too, is that matter of, you, you said this isn't, this isn't a, a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde type thing where there's this monster that comes to life. And, and I, think, I think that's important because one of the maybe the one of the ways that we might try to take this text and use it for self-justification is to avoid blame ourselves. And, and maybe even you see this, you know, we might try to do this if we play fast and loose with when Paul says, for example, in verse 17, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me as as if we and we might try to make that sound like, well, it, it's not my fault. It's sin's fault within me and not my fault. He says, he uses that similar phrasing again in verse 20. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And I I don't think that's what Paul is trying to do, trying to find some sort of excuse, blame it on something or someone other than himself, because he's taken all of those excuses away in chapters one through three. So what, I mean, dig into that a little bit more for us. Yeah, he wants to identify specifically what is going on inside him. He, If he were using it as an excuse, then Christ would not be necessary. That's why it's so key to understand that self-justification is not the issue here. Um, when someone says something like, I mean, they, they usually don't say this phrase, but effectively they say, the devil made me do it, or I can't help it, or God made me this way. That is self-justification. That means that no change is necessary, no sorrow is necessary, and therefore, finally, Christ is not necessary because, sure, this is sin, or yes, this is destroying my life, or yes, this is wrecking my family, but I can't help it. And that's not Paul's plea. Paul wants to identify the difference between uh, what he wants to do, what the one who is a slave to righteousness wants to do, and the fact that there are things in his life going on that, of which he still has need to repent. That's very different from saying, uh, I have things that are bad. I have things that are evil. Yeah, let's call them sin. 
but I can't help it or I don't want to help it or I don't want to change. You see, there is no struggle there. And where there is no struggle, there is no need for Christ. There's no need for his justification, his righteousness, which is revealed only to faith. Um, so Paul is not here blaming everything on some kind of external or internal force that he can't help. He's still repenting of his sin, even as he's saying, I am not only you know, a sinner. I'm also a saint. So that, that distinction is very important for one's understanding of himself. Um, it's also important so that we don't begin to engage in self-justification, which is what people are doing when they're basically saying, I, I can't, you know, I can't help it. Mm, right, right. Let's, um, what about this? So that, again, I'm, just to sort of dig into this, this mystery that I am at the same time, or I'm simultaneously saint and sinner, in, in verse 17, and again, I, we, we've talked a little bit about this, how, how Paul will speak very vividly, and, and we need to pay attention to how he's using these things. But in verse 17, for example, he says, now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Sin dwells within me. And I know this is, we haven't gotten here yet in Sharper Iron, but in chapter 8, he's going to say that the Spirit dwells in you. So how do the, I mean, and it, it seems that that the matter of sin dwelling in me, what, what Paul is saying here, yes, it is a reality, but the conclusion he's going to come to is that Ultimately, the controlling reality of who I am as a Christian is not the sin dwelling in me, but it's going to be the, as you'll say in chapter eight, the spirit dwelling in me. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And if you think back to chapter six and also chapter five, where he talked about um, Adam's reign and Christ's reign, respectively, or death's reign, um, sin might live in the neighborhood, but sin doesn't run the neighborhood. The neighborhood is run by Christ. Uh, the neighborhood is defined by life. There are still evil things present, but they do not have lordship over me. And that's a very important distinction. And I think it is very simple if you kind of play it out. If you said, well, these are, these are different characters in a movie. So, uh, you know, the guy that's in charge of everything in a movie is a good guy, but there are also some evil guys still around. Like, that's pretty easy to understand. And Paul is saying that sin does not have lordship over me but it's very, very close to me. In fact, it's inside me. And that is mysterious uh, only until you <laughs> practice self-examination and repentance. And then the only mystery that, that you're awaiting now is not uh, how can this be possible or how can Paul, a Christian, talk this way? That's, that's really when, you're, when you are uh, repenting, it's, it's quite easy to understand. The mystery is now when will Christ come and rid the world forever of all these things. And that's exactly where he's going to move in chapter 8 about the whole creation, including humanity, the whole creation groaning in eager expectation of the revelation of the sons of God. We're looking for something better, and we know it's coming. And the reason we're looking for something better is because we know how evil still this world, but also our own hearts can so often be. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember called this one again when, in a previous conversation. We were talking about this particular chapter, thinking forward, that that Paul is writing these things as what you might call a quote mature Christian. He this is you know probably mid fifties A.D. when he's writing the letter to the Romans. It's not right after he's been converted. It's not the first letter he's written. He's had plenty of time as a Christian, as an apostle, and and yet at this moment when he 
pauses to write down the self-reflection that surely he's he's had it, <laughs> he he seems like you know and this is maybe to go back to a bit to the why some of us have have a hard time thinking that this is paul but it is the longer he's been a christian it seems that the more he recognizes how sinful he is how much he needs christ rather than pausing and saying look how far i've come which which seems to be an error that many christians today especially in our context might fall into yeah yeah exactly and i i, I think that that is uh it's tremendously important it's it, because he also when he is speaking this let's say darkly about what mm. life in this present age is like this is when he goes to uh, the first person singular, and he does something very similar in 1 Corinthians 9 when he talks about how he disciplines his body uh, lest he should be disqualified after preaching to others. And uh, it's not like that's not a possibility, like someone else could not fall away uh, from truth. Uh, in fact, he says in the pastorals that Hymenaeus and Alexander have made shipwreck of their faith. But it's very interesting to me that when Paul is describing himself, he will describe very often the most amazing heights of grace and the mercy of God, and also the greatest depths of human sin, right? Um, he'll talk about his delusion before his conversion, or he'll talk about the real danger that his flesh could get in the way of uh, what is uh, good and righteous and holy. And he'll speak in the first person singular at these times. And that is a very beautiful way, I think, of his handling the situation, because he could come at the Romans and say, look, I mean, compared to me, you guys are nothing. What have you accomplished? In fact, you don't even have a single church. You know, notice that the address to the Romans is to the churches in Rome. They're not even necessarily united. I mean, maybe some of them don't even know each other. It's a big city. But he doesn't do that. And he doesn't call them sinners. But he's very willing to call himself a sinner. And then, you know, you understand this also describes all of us. But it's very beautiful to me how the Apostle of Christ, when he's speaking about his own life, can only speak about the heights of Christ's grace and also the depths of his own depravity. That's, that's what he talks about when he talks about himself. Right. Well, and even, I mean, I'm thinking through uh, like Philippians chapter three, when he does start to list off, quote, some of his accomplishments, well, he ends up calling them nothing, refuse. Yeah, I mean, right. it's, it's exactly. very, <laughs> and so I, I think, and I think this is important too, because elsewhere in his letters, Paul will, will say things that often make us uncomfortable for different reasons. He'll talk about, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I, I yeah. think, I mean, at least I know for my, my own sake, it's it's hard to hear that and like, well, there's there's just no way I can live up to, to what Paul's put forward. But I think yeah. keeping this chapter in mind and, and all those other places where, as you said, he switches to this first person singular and he he reminds you that that he's the chief of sinners who received the, the overabundance of God's grace. I think that really helps, yeah. you know, hold on to those statements where he does say imitate me because this sort of self-reflection confession and ultimately dependence on Christ alone I think that's finally what, what Paul wants when, when he says to imitate me. Yes, yeah, 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 exactly. And what he's doing there is he always wants people to imitate him, especially in Corinth, for the sake of Christ's mission. So if you're trying to imitate Paul and you are very impressed with yourself, you miss the point. Mm -hmm. Because the point of imitation is not for you to be impressed with Paul and then become impressive yourself. 
It is to get the job done of carrying the gospel to the nations. That, that's the point of imitation. That's why Timothy is his faithful child who will bring those things to remembrance for the Corinthians. And what, so what's happening here is that if you are impressed with yourself at all, you have, you've missed the key in which Paul has played these things, in which he has performed these things. Because the point here is that Paul has been taken captive by the lordship of Christ and is now being used to carry the gospel to the nations. And even his sin is being used by Christ, he says, and in what you just alluded to, even his sin is being used for a display of Christ's perfect patience with sinners. Very beautiful. And so uh, the whole point of speaking in the first person singular is really more like when I teach my, you know, my boys to throw a baseball. It doesn't mean that I'm saying I should have been a Cy Young Award winner, but I wasn't recognized enough or something. It's just like I have to teach you how to carry out a certain task, a certain thing that's important in life, and watch me a couple times, and you have to learn how to do it too. That's what imitation is for, because we're all engaged in carrying the gospel to the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very helpful example there. So in, in Romans 7, then, verses 15 through 20, it seems Paul is, is laying out this struggle in, in terms of this is the way that it works in his own life. I do what I don't want. I don't do what I want. Or as, as you said, I think very helpfully, I I accomplish, right? Sin is, sin is so much easier to accomplish than the good thing. That, that was a, a wonderful insight. Right. So, so he... I mean, and, and just, you know, even uh, it's, it's so evident right now when we've got all the time in the world, it seems to do, to do what is right. And, and we still have a hard time accomplishing it. Uh, yeah. It's just uh, wonderful, wonderful insight. So he, he, he seems to, in verse 21, he starts to, to summarize this a bit and he uses the word law here. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. What, and, and this is, this is often difficult in Paul. Because he uses that word law, but I don't think he always uses it the same way. How's he using it here? No. Okay. Yeah, and you kind of you have to pay close attention, you know. And very, very different people disagree about how many laws there are in verses twenty-one through twenty-three. And John Calvin even came up with five different ones, which you know, I mean, you know, that's that's one way to take it. So uh, you could take it as okay. Paul is always somehow talking about. He's just talking about different effects in his life that God's law has. That's, that's one way you could take it. I think that what he's often doing with the word law is he's talking about how something functions. We might use the word function or dynamic or the way things work. Um, and uh, I think that's what's most often going on here, um, except in 22, when he says, I delight in the law of God, that is God's revealed law. But in 21, he's talking really more about, you know, I find that this is how things go with me, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. You, you have that great image from Genesis 4 of, you know, evil and sin, you're like sort of a nasty little troll crouching at Cain's door, you know, ready to uh, lead him to do evil things, right? You have to resist it. So evil lies close at hand. It's right there. The verb is actually the same verb that John the Baptist uses when he talks about Jesus's uh, axe lying at the root of the tree, right? We're ready to go here. We're ready to get down to work. So evil is always hanging around waiting for me. It lies close at hand. And I would say so in 21, a law is kind of this is how things work. 
And then in 22, I delight in the law of God, that is God's revealed will, his holy will, his commandments, okay? Uh, in my inner being, or more literally, it's, it's in my inner man in Greek. And my inner man is what is being renewed day by day and being transformed from glory to glory in Second Corinthians. So that's, that's, that's helpful to understand that there is also something in Paul, this is the saint, that always delights in God's will and thinks it's wonderful and wants to do it freely. But I see in my members another law, 23, and this is where it's kind of, you know, uh, I do not think this is like a, a document you can obtain. I think it's a way things work. Another law, another way that things work, which wages war against the law of my mind. And by mind, I think we think about like, you know, maybe cognitive science or the way brains work or traumatic brain injuries or something. By mind, Paul generally means, you know, my, my thoughts, the things that actually come to the surface. So it's a little more superficial in the Bible than my heart. My mind is a little, there's a little less information there because um, everything comes out of my heart. But in my mind, I understand. So this is, this is key, is that Paul does not assume that the Christian is going through life actively trying to agree with or actively trying to do evil. That is that he's leaving, as he says elsewhere, he's leaving no room for the flesh. Uh, the formula of Concord, when it talks about this issue, has a really beautiful image of someone who is departing from Christ and actually agreeing with sin actively, rationally, consciously with his mind. And it talks very vividly about decorating the heart for Satan. And I, I think about like an evil birthday party with a black crepe everywhere and black balloons, you know, decorating the heart for Satan. Paul says, I'm not doing that. I'm not walking around during the day saying, yeah, I know that's sinful, but whatever. So consciously with the law of my mind, I'm agreeing with God's law. But I find another thing going on and making me captive to the law of sin. And I think this is the way things work, right? The law of sin is, this is this, I find this other thing going on that dwells in my members. Members and flesh are often equated with Paul. So mm -hmm. I think there are really only two laws going on here, which is, on the one hand, God's holy law, which is revealed to me and with which my, my, my mind agrees. And then on the other hand, there is a law in the sense of this is how things work, and that is the dynamic of the flesh uh, that remains. Mm. So, I mean, in verse, so the, the law of God, and that's the one in verse 22, that's how we often, when we think of law as, particularly as Lutherans, that's, that's what we're talking about there. But these other uses right. of law surrounding it, maybe something more like a, I mean, if I could say it like in verse 21, so I find it to be a, a truth or a, yeah. uh, just the way that it works. That's the way that we should understand right. law there. And then again, in verse 23, a similar way of understanding law there. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and the law, you know, so I would say there, there are two, there are at least two. If you want to say that the law of my mind in verse 23 is something else as well, you could say that, although Paul presumes that the law of my mind agrees with the law of God. So I do think there are finally only two, two things going on. One is God's revealed and holy law, and the other is the way that sin and flesh like to work together. Right. Okay. So then Paul, Paul then is, is I mean, 
And you, you mentioned earlier that there's, there's two ways that we can fall off. One is pride, which we often see, and the other is despair. And it seems if, if Paul's going to fall off one way at this moment in his self-reflection, it would be despair. And, and that's, I think, what starts to come out in verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am. What, what is Paul confessing about himself when he calls himself wretched? He's confessing that there is nothing that God would need to look upon and raise from the dead to eternal blessedness um, with any kind of deserving. So Romans 7, 14 to 25, goes along with the entirety of Romans, which is a very glorious picture of the depths of human depravity, often very vividly described. Paul very vividly describes the sin of others in Romans 1 and 2, but in 7, he describes very vividly his own sin and his own way of life, um, even now, as a mature Christian. And it's important to understand that a mature Christian is one who is able to say he's wretched. An immature Christian might remain under some sort of delusion that he's no longer wretched. A mature Christian is always more and more aware uh, that he, and I love this phrase from Walther's Law and Gospel, that uh, you are not a painted sinner and Christ is not a painted Savior. This isn't some kind of big show. <laughs> this, is, this is the most real thing you could ever imagine. Uh, this is who you really are, and therefore this is who Christ really has to be, uh, a bloody crucified Savior. There are no other options. Uh, it's, not, it's not a game. It's not a show. So this mature Christian is able to very vividly say, when I look at my flesh, when I look at my sin, uh, all I find is wretchedness. There's nothing in me that is deserving of salvation. There's nothing in me that would merit justification. So 24 is absolutely necessary for understanding why 25 exists, which is I give thanks to God that my justification, my salvation, my life are not dependent on me and my flesh. Because even now, as a Christian, I still have nothing in me that would be deserving of God's justification. Um, you know, he, he says this uh, in a different way in 2 Corinthians 4, when he's trying to make them very aware of the, the reality that everything that they have, even as Christians, is a gift. And he says, what do you have that you have not received? So everything about Paul that we might find impressive or even daunting when he says, imitate me, Paul does not claim as his own. <laughs> He's willing to claim as his own, his own wretchedness, but everything else he says, that was a gift. Everything good, that was a gift. So, Pastor, Pastor Kuntz, with just about three minutes left here then, take us into to verse 25, wrap things up. What is, what is the hope that Paul has as a wretched man in his Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, the hope that he has is everything. I mean, he has staked everything on this uh, crucified and risen Jesus. Because of that, he is able to speak with honesty. And this is something I find, I mean, sometimes Paul is difficult to understand, and we've had to deal with that today because he likes to jump around a little bit, and he likes to use uh, different images in just slightly different ways. But he is able, I think, most of all to be honest, and that's what he's being at the end of 25. Because he's not despairing, but he is sober when he says, so then, as a result of all this that I just said, and as a result of the fact that my justification is only found in Christ, I myself, I, who I am, I, I only serve the law of God with my mind. 
So I am set um, on a daily basis on God's law um, and what it uh, instructs for my life. I'm set on that. Um, But also there is within me, in my flesh, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. That's going to set up this desire for the destruction of sin, this desire for the destruction of the evil, corrupt flesh. And that's where he's going to go in chapter 8, because now, because of this dynamic, I want this, this, this twofold thing. I want this to go away. I want these contradictions. I want this achievement gap. I want this all to go away. And in chapter 8, now he's going to go into, so what is my hope, not only for myself and my justification, but indeed for the whole world? And that's why he's going to look toward glory when the gap between what I want to be and who I am will be abolished forever. And that day is coming in Christ Jesus, our Lord, coming soon. Pastor Adam Kuntz, the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz, is the Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, helping us this morning with Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Dr. Kuntz, thanks for your time today. Hey, thanks a lot. Wretched man that I am, when I look at my life, I do not understand what I do. Paul could say it, I I can say it, I, you can say it, I, I don't understand what I do. I do the things that I don't want to do. And and the things that I don't want to do, that's what I so easily accomplish, that sin dwelling in me. I am under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and yet sin is right there vying for control. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Send once and for all to take us to our glorious home with him. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.